be turning to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at beginning in verse 22 to the end of that chapter. What a blessing it is to be with you guys this morning. And Willie, thank you for that, I was going to say kind introduction. I love you, brother. Thank you for your friendship. And thank you for uh, the opportunity of being here today. Let's read the text together. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. This is the word of God for the people of God. May all of God's people say amen. amen. Bless us, O Lord, as we wrestle with this text together. As we sing, open the eyes of our heart, O Lord. We want to see Jesus and him alone. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before I tell this story, you need to understand that I have cleared this with my bride. That's very important for you to know. Carol and I, every morning we have a ritual through which we go. We eat our breakfast together, and of course we pray together. And equally important, we take our pills together. So several years ago, you'll notice I wear glasses. It's the progressive type of lenses, not the conservative. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a funny joke, isn't it? And I was trying, Carol, Carol said, why don't you try some of these contacts? They may make you look a little better. She said, no, I said see better, but I thought she said look a little better. So I tried them. I had contacts when I was in high school back in Nartum, and you know, they just didn't work very well. They were hard, felt like grit in your eyes. Anybody ever tried to wear hard contact lenses? You know what I'm talking about. And she said, well, these are different. They're soft. You won't even know they're in your eyes. Well, I'm, you know, I need some for reading. I need some for seeing far away. And they just, I tried them, and they just couldn't quite get them fixed. Everything looked like Van Gogh's starry sky, like there was an orb around everything. Well, one morning I had put these contacts in and it went to the breakfast table. And we have these pill boxes. They're blue, same color, Monday through, or Sunday through Saturday. 
She had written her name, C-A-R-O-L, on top of her box and G-A-R-R-Y on top of mine. Well, when you're blind, Carol looks an awful lot like Gary. <laughs> and for some reason, her box was in front of my plate and it looked like Gary to me, so I popped open the pill box, or that particular day, popped in the pills, took a big old gulp of coffee and swallowed them down. And she said, wait, 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 those are my pills. I said, um, what did I just take? <laughs> well, I took a high blood pressure medication, which I did not need. I took an antidepressant. And yes, an estrogen pill. <laughs> now, Phyllis, you may remember that day. It was a Tuesday, I called the staff together, and full disclosure, you need to understand what I have just done. So if you would check on me about every 30 minutes to make sure I'm not passed out, I would appreciate it. And I went into our associate minister's office and said, Charlie, can I have a hug? <laughs> oh, there's something about seeing clearly that is a treasure. This text really talks about that in a deep spiritual way. Here was this blind man. He must not have been congenitally blind because apparently he sort of knew what trees looked like. But he had been blind for some time. And when Jesus was in the house of fish, that's what Bethsaida means, house of fish. I would love to live in a village like that. The house of fish must have been good seafood. I grew up in Pensacola, Florida. I, I appreciate good seafood. They begged Jesus to heal this man. Have you ever begged Jesus for someone? I don't know about this man. We're not told his name. But apparently there were a number of folks there that loved this man. And they bring him to Jesus and the word here is to come alongside and to speak, to beseech, to beg. Heal him. Jesus takes him by the hand and leads him outside of the village. That's interesting, isn't it? It's almost as if Jesus wants to do these kinds of healing miracles in obscurity at this time during his ministry, particularly in the Galilee area where he was. And the next thing that the blind man hears is <sighs> In fact, the word for spit is pituo. It's sort of an onomatopoeia. It sounds like the word spit. And then he touches him. Then Jesus asks this crazy question. Well, did it work? Do you see anything? The blind man says, sort of. I see people, but they're so blurry, it looks like trees walking. Then Jesus touches him the second time. And the text says, he sees everything clearly. Now, that's fascinating. Why did it take Jesus two times? There are a number of questions that arise out of this text. I think that's one of the biggest one for me. The other, why do you have to spit on him and why did he touch him? 
But why did he take him outside the village and why, why did it take him two touches? Turn over a few chapters in chapter 10, blind Bartimaeus, he just begs him and Jesus says, you're healed. And he sees everything clearly and follows Jesus in the way. Mark is doing something interesting in this section. It's as if this blind man of Bethsaida and blind Bartimaeus is, are bookends for these particular texts that appear in which Jesus draws a connection between the vague eyesight of the disciples regarding who Jesus is and their perception of discipleship. I don't have time to go into all of that, but it is fascinating. I noticed on your slides that you're talking about discipleship, discipling all the nations of God. Man, that's great. So let's look at this particular response now with this blind man because earlier Jesus had said to his disciples, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? How is it that you don't understand? And I wonder, I wonder how much Gary Brantley really understands about this God. I've been preaching for as long as Moby Dick had been a minnow. I heard that from Butch Meads, by the way. <laughs> and I wonder, do I really see Jesus? I don't know if you're like me, but if I'm honest, and sometimes I'd rather not be honest, Jesus looks an awful lot like me. I think he was bald. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I think... I think he was a good Southern gentleman. I think he was Western. I think he had all the presuppositions and assumptions. I think that he was a good consumer like me. But then I read the text, and I realize that Jesus is calling me to follow him, not to fashion him according to my own desires. So who is this Jesus? Let's, let's bore a little longer into the text when we ask the question, how do you see me? Or Jesus actually is asking this question. Notice in verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. This is a little farther northeast. And by the way, if you were reading Matthew where Jesus tells Peter after this interchange, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In this area, there was a cave that the pagans believed were the gates of Hades. Interesting, isn't it? So on the way, he asked them, eh, who do people say that I am? That's a good question. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Wow, that's pretty impressive. But then Jesus says, what about you? The word you there is third masculine, singular. You guys. Now we in the South have a better word for that. What is it? These three over here got that one. Y'all. That's a good question. Perhaps if Jesus were standing here and I was sitting out there with you, he'd be saying, now, who do y'all say that I am? Oh, 
Peter answered, You are the Christ. Fascinating. Good answer. True answer. But what did he mean by that? And what did Jesus mean by it? Because then Jesus says, he warns them. This is an intensive verb. Do not tell anyone about him. What? Don't, don't spread the word? Wonder why there's this messianic secret that appears in the Gospel of John. And this is one of those times. So... Jesus then gives the definition of discipleship because what Peter meant by Christos, Messiah, was not exactly what Jesus meant by Christos, Messiah. And here's how it is borne out. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, read Daniel 7, by the way, wish I had time to go into that, must suffer many things. Because Son of Man there refers to as divinity, not as humanity. Be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. May I suggest to you that when the disciples heard suffer, reject, killed, that they didn't hear anything about resurrection. And so then Peter takes him aside, beginning in verse 32, and he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Don't you love Peter? Bless your heart, God. You just don't understand. And when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get me behind me, Shatan. It's hard not to take that person. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concern. Back in the day when I was a baby preacher, I would step off and start talking about, you know, those Peters out there. They just don't get it. But our brand has gotten it. And I have gotten it. And then I look a little closer to the text, and if Petros, Peter himself, is not representative of me, I don't know who he's representative of. Here was a man who was following Jesus. He was one who was committed to Torah. He was one committed to what Jesus was saying, and yet he still was more concerned about human matters than godly matters. That hits me between the eyes. Even in preaching and ministry, I can have, be, have, I can have much more concern about worldly things than I am about godly things. And I want to repent of that. And so then Jesus gives his definition of discipleship. Listen, do you see the connection here? You're like the blind man that only vaguely sees who I am. My messiahship for you is like that blind man who had the first touch. You need the second to touch, I think is what Mark is telling him. For he says, he began to teach them these things that he must be rejected. He spoke plainly about it. And then he says in verse 34, 
he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, whoever. Now that's a big word. Whoever. Whoever wants to be my disciple. I want to be Jesus' disciple. Must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Hmm. I understand that Brett is preaching through the book of Romans. And we talked about that and I said, I don't think I'm qualified to follow you in that. Let me just do something in the Gospel of Mark because I believe the Gospel of Mark was written to Roman Christians just a few years after Paul wrote the epistle to the Romans. And if you can imagine these followers of Jesus who were being set aside, being questioned, being shamed in their culture because they followed a crucified God, this would resonate with them. They felt the threat of their faith. They understood that the potential was really there, that they may just have to walk the way of the cross just like their Lord. And so he says, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. I don't like that. I'd rather just be able to keep myself intact and just walk along with Jesus and invite him into my agenda in any time I needed him. How about you? Wouldn't that be a great God to serve? One that looks just like me and does the thing that I want and is a cosmic vending machine that all I have to do is send a quarter of a prayer and get what I want. Don't you wish that was the way God worked? Yeah. I guess I'm the only one in this crowd <laughs> that's that ungodly. Oh, that's the way we try to treat God, though. I believe that with all of my heart. And this text challenges that egocentric approach to life and to faith that says, Gary, you're not at the center of the universe. And while that may not be good news for us Western folks who place ourselves at the center, thank God I'm not. It takes a lot of pressure off. And in fact, there is good news of saying that once you get yourself out of the center, you can begin to start living in a way you've never lived before. Because guess what? If you're at the center of your universe, you have a very puny God. And every time I look in the mirror these days, I go, ooh, why am I worshiping that thing? Deny yourself. It's not a, it's not a mad God saying, it's come out of yourself and to come into life. Take up a cross. Follow me, not just from one point to the next. Be covered in the dust of this rabbi so that you can begin to learn what it means to live in true, true freedom and therefore experience life. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, 
but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And the gospel in Mark is the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe that euangelion. Oh, what a beautiful gospel that is. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul, their life, their very identity? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Good questions. Good questions. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. We don't quite get this in our Western society, but in the Eastern context, both in Jew Jewish thought and in Roman thought, shame, honor was huge in their culture. And in fact, what Mark is saying is the very things that people are causing you shame over are the very things that brings you glory. Don't, don't give up on following this crucified but risen God because Mark very clearly shows that Jesus' crucifixion was a coronation of the Caesar. Do some study on that. It's fascinating. This is what true power looks like hanging on a cross. And culture says that's what weakness looked like. Don't be ashamed of that. Mel Gibson may have gotten it wrong with the passion. It's not about the pain. It's about the shame. And God was willing to be shamed by the worldly standards to show us what true honor is. Oh, I listened to this text. And then he finally says in verse 1 of chapter 9, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. Fascinating. I've wrestled with this concept. And several years ago, I was reading a book by N.T. Wright, one of my favorite authors these days. I have to give the caveat, I don't agree with everything that he says, in case you're familiar with N.T. Wright. But if he were here, I wouldn't say it. But that was a joke. Help me out. I think I'm at Crossbridge this morning. And he said these words that clarified it for me. This is a Christologically based inaugurated eschatology. And I thought, that's it. Now, what does that mean? Oh, we often think of eschatology, the things of the end, as being out there in the future, right? What Mark is saying is that through the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, the eternal kingdom of God has already broken into our world. It is not yet fully consummated, and the church takes up that space between the times, and it is us who are to live into the kingdom of God in this old world to demonstrate what God is up to. If that's the case, church starts getting interesting again. The way we treat one another, the way we live, the way we demonstrate love and grace and truth to the world is about what God is doing and will ultimately do, not supporting the fallen structures of our current world. Now, that's fascinating. And if that's what church is about, I think I'll get up on Sunday mornings and go. 
I asked Carol that question one time. Why do we need to go to church this morning? She said, well, they pay you to go. <laughs> okay. I have about five minutes. I have four quick points out of this text. And what, I, what I'm calling this is bruises from my wrestling match. I, I try not to interpret the Bible so much as I invite it to interpret me, and it exposes so much in my heart. Here are some things that come out of that. Number one, how we, how I perceive Jesus will determine how I or we perceive discipleship. Keep that in mind. Number two, the cross, the cross, thank God for the cross here on this stage, is at the center of Jesus' self-definition. The cross must be at the center of our lives, a cruciform life, a cruciform church. What does it mean when we keep the cross of Christ at the center of our lives, I will guarantee you it will change the way we begin to relate to one another because we get ourselves out, our emphasis and insistence on our personal rights out of the way so that Jesus can be all that Jesus is to be. It changes your marriage. It changes every relationship that you have. It reminds me that Jesus is Lord and Savior, the cross. Thirdly, God is calling us to follow. This means to be thoroughly immersed in the life of Jesus. I want to be covered by the dust of this rabbi. I want to understand how Jesus thought and how Jesus lived for the purpose for which he did those things so that my life will reflect more and more of who this Jesus I claim to follow is. That's the call of church. That's the power of church. It means putting ourselves at risk for the world. John 3, 16 does not say God was so mad at the world that he killed his son, and now he's really mad because we don't appreciate it. John 3, 16 says God so loved the world that he gave his son. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Does the world see in the followers of Jesus this kind of self-giving sacrifice for the world? It's a question. And finally, I've been working on this on myself for so long, but believers are to be consumed by Christ, not consumers who hold membership in a church. I talk with Brett, and I appreciate the emphasis that you're making here at Homewood. I pray for more churches to emphasize the fact that church is not a place of goods and services that we come and consume and then go home and think about how well they did and determine if we're going to go back and give any more money to it, but that we have been called to follow and to be consumed by this Jesus. That's what God is calling us to be. And so, I suppose I want to end by asking this question again. Can we see? How well do we see? Maybe you're like me and I need a second touch. I need to spend some time at the cross.
Because it is fascinating to me as I read through the Gospel of Mark that there is only one human individual, human individual other than the preface in Mark chapter 1, only one human that proclaims Jesus as Son of God in the Gospel of Mark. And that's an old, crusty Roman centurion standing near the cross who saw how Jesus died and said, Surely this man was the Son of God. We can't see Jesus if we don't survey the old, wondrous cross. For at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight. And now I'm happy all the day. Brothers and sisters, don't lose sight of the cross. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, the everlasting King, the creator of the heavens and the earth. We proclaim you now as Lord and Savior. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the cross. I pray now that as your spirit is at work among us, that you will lodge truth in our hearts that only your spirit can do. Take these feeble words and attempt at it and do something beautiful. Start with me. And I pray now, O Lord, if there's anyone here who needs prayer, there will be a shepherd up here to receive you. There will be a shepherding couple in the the chapel over here to my right outside. If anyone needs prayer or ministry, I pray, O Lord, that they will take, that we all will take this time to listen to your word, to listen to the prompting of your spirit, so that we all might receive a second touch. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.